Hey guys, I hope you had a chance to check out our last episode, which was a conversation with Eric Loftus from Cape and Islands Tennis and Track. We had such a great discussion about core construction. This week's episode is a conversation with Rishan Kurupu. He has been a tennis director for many years, and of course, you'll get to listen to his bio here in a bit. I thought we could do an episode dedicated to helping a new tennis pro. So this conversation is very much centered around the career path from successful tennis coach to director and some of the things you want to be thinking about early in your career. Some of these things we talked about are things I wish someone had told me when I first started teaching. Rishan had some of the best one-liners I think I've heard, like scores divide and skills unite. Little things repeated lead to big things completed and speed is the enemy of progress. These are so great because they're just very simple, very profound, and super easy to remember. I do think that you will get something out of this episode, even if you're an experienced pro. If you're fortunate to be in that category, please share this episode with your peers, your staff, and anyone considering a career in the tennis industry. We have talked about how we have so few professionals entering our industry. So maybe this episode can help clarify some things for someone who's considering it. Lastly, you can visit our website at vitatennispodcast.com for more information about Vita Tennis, and you can follow on Facebook, Instagram, and or YouTube. Get ready to learn from one of the best out there only here at Vita Tennis. Enjoy! Hello, everybody. Welcome to Vita Tennis, the podcast for those of us who eat, sleep, breathe tennis. Today, I'm excited to talk with Rishan Kurupu. For the last 10 years, he's served as the director of tennis at the Rotund Point Club in Connecticut. Before that, he was a director at Proform Tennis Academy in New York. He's also a private family coach in Greenwich and an executive leadership coach. He's written many articles for different tennis publications like the New York Tennis Magazine and PTR. He has a tennis podcast also called Zen Tennis by Rish. He played tennis for MTSU and was a member of the Sri Lankan Davis Cup team. Welcome, Rishan, to Vita Tennis. How are you doing today? Good, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. What a what a kind and uh, generous welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. And and how are you doing? I know you just wrapped up what your eleventh season in in Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, 11 years at Roten Point. Uh, it's been an incredible journey. Uh, it still feels like day one for me, which is uh, very exciting. So I'm very passionate about my work and excited for all the opportunities that have come along the way. I'd like to start from the beginning. How did you get into coaching and was that always kind of the plan for you? At what point basically did you realize that this is a career that you could pursue? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Jennifer. And I think <clears throat> there are a few things that I really loved. I loved tennis. I loved people. And I loved presenting information. So after, during college, you know, I had a couple summers where I was asked to come up and be an assistant pro at a club in Connecticut called the Lake Club. And that's where I really started to see, wow, okay, this is this is what I enjoy doing. This is where the fun for me, the all day was kind of like giving me an outlet for what I really already loved. So, you know, obviously passion for tennis, 
passion for people and a passion for presenting information. I never knew how far that would go, but I, I had small windows where I was like, okay, for the next two years, this is what I'm going to do. I do have to pay for college. I have a lot of other things that are going on. And it's just a great way to be also out in the Northeast where you have some exposure to a different energy and a different network, which I found uh, very interesting. That's really awesome. That's a big change going from Tennessee to the Northeast. <laughs> I actually went to school in Tennessee as well. Oh, um, wow. Where? A school called Lincoln Memorial. It's a D- Division okay. II school. Um, Great. We played ETSU, not MTSU. But I'm very familiar. And we've had a couple MTSU people. We've had Emma Doyle and we had David McNamara, who you know. Of course. Um, of course. Also went to MTSU. You've seen it all. I mean, I'm sure you've been in the industry for quite some time and you've seen some some great coaches uh, along the way. You've hired people. You've been a coach yourself. What would you say are some of the main qualities of some of the best hires you've had? I would say that, you know, they have to have a package of a few key components. For example, they have to have a, a personality that's positive, optimistic and outgoing, Right. I think they they need to have a level of patience and perspective. I also believe that they need to have a form of measuring progress and recognizing potential and then ensuring for positive results. That's all really, though, in my opinion, Jennifer, it's really built into each person's philosophy for things, right? How, what, what are your guiding principles for operating, right? And as everyone matures in different phases of their career, I think the most important thing to do is say, okay, am I creating a set of principles that are valued and can be most helpful versus most hurtful, right? And yeah. so how you, how you behave on the court how you act on the court, how you communicate on the court will either help you or hurt you. But it really comes down to every pro sitting down and either doing it through their own reflective method or having a phenomenal mentor who would guide you and say, okay, these are the steps you need if your career would like to move from an assistant to a head pro. And what does the head pro to a director look like? And then what is a director to maybe uh, owning your own commercial club look like, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there, there are different, different phases, but the philosophy and the guiding principles are transferable through all of them, through all of them. Many ways that, that we can go from there, but I know we had talked about having those mentors and I think that that's, that's really important. I haven't had like, like I wouldn't call them mentors, but it was more like just bosses, I guess, that I've had, directors that I've worked under that kind of show me the ropes. And those are the positions that are most memorable to me is when the, the director really took me in and, and taught me other things. Because as you know, there are many things in, in this industry when you come into coaching that you just don't know of, right? Like how to deal with people and how to present yourself, how to talk, your tone, how to best deal with many different situations that that we deal with so that's always great to have 
just that that guidance. And like you said, the career path, I think, is something that is getting a lot better. Now you can study this in college. When we were figuring this out, we, that was not an option. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. just like by having having great people around you that kind of show you how you can progress in, in your career. How long were you teaching before you became a director? So I spent two summers working as an assistant pro. And at that time, I had a wonderful conversation. I was sitting across the table David McNamara, uh, who you had. And we were having lunch and he got a phone call from his former doubles partner back in Australia. His name was Matthew Breen. And he was starting Proform Tennis Academy in Rybrook, New York. And they had four pros and they were looking to add more and, and build, their, build their business. So I came in, took an interview and they hired me a couple of days later. And I drove all the way from Tennessee in my oh, wow. 87 Nissan Sentra with uh, eight oil changes along the way, not even knowing I was going to make it because it's close. <laughs> but I said yes, because I wanted to see what that would take. Right. So to make a long story short, I spent 13 years at Proform Tennis Academy. So of all the people before me, no one remained. I was the last one after still another 15 people were hired after that. And along that 13 years, you know, I went from an assistant pro to a head pro to a director. And all of that just sort of, I was ready to take on a new chapter. You know, running Roten Point, I became a director at 29 years old. So it was it was only five years where I was really an assistant and a head pro before I took on uh, a tremendous opportunity. Um, but a lot of a lot of that was, in my opinion, Jennifer, saying yes to what a lot of people said no to. Okay, and how I would describe that is, for example, when we first started Performing Tennis Academy, we had no teams, no ladies teams. Uh, we were on the beginning stages. We had a team captain come and say to the staff and to the, to the boss, the main director, we'd love to have a, a team here. Would anyone be interested to coach us? No one said yes. Uh, um, I, I said yes. <laughs> and I sat down with 18 women, Jennifer, in a room. And I talked to them about peace, friendships, collaboration, and the process. And to make a long story short, those relationships still remain. And we had the best record in the United States, 24 and 0. At wow. And that, that put us on the cover of the USDA National Magazine. It had nothing to do about winning. And so my whole framework is say yes to everything, over deliver all possible expectations imaginable, and enjoy the collaboration with others in the most meaningful fashion. And so I took on different opportunities by just saying yes along the way. And that was kind of like my track record for always delivering and over-delivering. Right. There's so much good in there because when you say yes to things, especially things that 
you're not too sure of, right? You're stepping out of your comfort zone. That's just going to make you better. Do you know why the other coaches said no? They just didn't want to work with a ladies team or what was it? Yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's again, there's, there's a lot of things you have to deal with right on a team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's Personalities, there's lineups, there's differences. There's, are we, are we here to win? What is our objective? But yeah. I am, I am, if I may be honest, I'm, I'm a teacher by default and a peacemaker by natural being. As a result, I, I love going into the most difficult environments and saying, what are the possible resolutions here and how can we all thrive in this together? And so, and that's very hard because again, a lot of times, uh, and I have this phrase, scores divide and skills unite. Now, if a skill is something that's intentional about lifting others up, right? Mm -hmm. And not saying, okay, you got five points, you got four points, you're better than me. So you must mean that you're more entitled to play in a better role or a better position. So mm -hmm. I, I never use scoring in anything I do because I believe in inclusive and not exclusive. And so again, this, this really all comes down to having a strong personal philosophy for what you believe in that you want to accomplish. And, and that's really been my, my guiding light is I've never had to be anybody different than myself. Yeah. You always end up finding your people, I think space for, for everyone. And I think a lot of coaches, I mean, certainly that I've worked with, there's all kinds of personalities. And I've talked about this before too. When you first start teaching, it's really hard to show your personality. A lot of coaches, when they first come in, they're very quiet, unless they're just naturally outgoing. It can take some time for people to, to develop that skill of being social and, and joking around and kind of showing your personality. But I do believe that tennis people are the most fun people, especially coaches. I think they tend to be really fun people, right? Yes, very outgoing, great personalities. And that's important is you want, you want to have uh, people that you want to work alongside, Jennifer. I think that's a crucial part of it. Absolutely. You have to be a people person, I think, which I, I can be. And sometimes not so much. I have my moments where I <laughs> like to be by myself. But I do, I do love uh, being around people and working with people. What has been your favorite part about teaching tennis and being a tennis professional? So for me, the joy comes in seeing the success of others. Yeah. So that's really where my joy is, is taking someone's ability that might be a little ordinary and then making it a little extraordinary, right? And then, and then seeing all of the great paths that that takes them. Because I'm a firm believer that as your skills improve, your confidence improves, your social ability improves, your paths in terms of directions, in terms of tennis improve, whether it be leagues, teams, social. So there's this whole other arena of exposure that comes when someone tastes that level of success and confidence. But it comes through, I believe, the coach having a personal responsibility to protect and preserve their best interests. 
And that's, that's a very difficult thing because I feel like to be an effective coach, you have to be so dialed in to that time with them that there's very little distraction that's going through your thoughts. Right. Mm -hmm. And as a coach, as a coach who, and and I call this, I call this sustained concentration cycle. So I, I coach this to my team. And it's really about how to operate at the highest level for 60 minutes in sustained concentration cycles. And mm-hmm. so as someone does that, your level of observation acuity, which means basically you know exactly what you're looking for as a maybe a potential challenge, and you can quickly diagnose that within 60 seconds. Yeah. And so... Once you do that, now you have a a design to implement possible change in the smallest manner repeated over the longest time is what takes progress forward. So as someone starts to look at that as a as a tool and as a skill set, then they will also find success in other people's joy. And then going to work is probably one of the most exciting parts of the day, which is why I really love uh, what I do, Jennifer. And I, and I really hope that others can find also that level of excitement and joy because I think it's there. I just think that they have to find it in a way that's meaningful for them. And what do you think are some of the common challenges that the pros encounter along the way? Yeah, that's also a great question. I mean, I, I think not feeling like they are learning anything new, right? Mm. I feel like they don't have the guidance to know what to look for and to help understand how to prescribe the right solutions, right? Because the other part of it is growth, right? Like how do you grow and how do you add more value to your personal package? Right. Mm-hmm. I don't think many pros realize that in itself and then don't have the education from someone who's maybe thinking about that as the most important principle in their philosophy and then imparts that along the way to their team. Right. Mm-hmm. And so once you look at some of those challenges and then you can solve for that, I think that it becomes an amazing opportunity where growth moves forward, right? The value of their lessons look better. They're appreciated. Members view you at a higher standard. And it looks like you're learning and they're learning as student and teacher side by side, which is a beautiful thing. But that is something that I I wish every club had someone who would do that for their teams because it would be an amazing growth opportunity for our industry to be collectively much better and operate in a really uh, smooth manner. Yeah. So what are some of your favorite tools for learning? Are you like, are you talking about like certifications or just in general? Yeah. I mean, so I think there are certifications, which I think are an amazing education platform. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I think that they, 
are great for one area, but I think the other area is that personal one-on-one connection with a real example who does it day in and day out. You know, so for example, right? Uh, I think I think an assistant coach may not know how to perfect the quality of their shot on an individualized basis and put it in an area that provides hope but still challenge to their prospective member, right? Mm-hmm. So going out there and working on ball control skills in a number of different manners and different styles of play that make you extremely competent in deliver that perfect ball, right? Another thing would be the ability to explain a complex problem in the most simplest manner using the fewest words. That comes from the directorate themselves. Mm -hmm. How about what is service and hospitality? Okay. Are you willing, if they see the director pick up trash along the pathway to the court, it's a great example. They're willing to do the same because that represents everyone as a collective and we all look better because of that. Right. So I love the certification platform. They're great for one avenue, but I, I love that personal trench work mentality of leadership through example, through a tremendous amount of time put in to your team through looking at all of the challenges and solving for them before day one of the job. How big is your staff now? And do you still spend a lot of time on court? I am in, involved in every single process. So I have a great team of 10 people, four full-time pros, another team that does different parts. You know, So I have a very good sense of time management, delegation, and then efficient processes that make everything run very smoothly. So to answer your question about on court, I spend no more than 20 hours on court a week, if that. And between all of that, I spend the morning getting the courts ready, leaving very late at night. I'm the first and last one. Jennifer is kind of my own mentality. And I love the idea of little things repeated lead to big things completed. And that's what I prescribe to my team is for them to grow, they also have to see Rish nailing in a line on the court because they're going to know how to nail the line incorrectly. Mm-hmm. When they see Rish sweeping a court, they're excited about saying, Rish, can I help you? Right. right. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it, and then it's getting them also involved in the event structure. It's getting them involved in the reservation policies. So I like to think of the team as an athletic entrepreneur. They are involved in every aspect of the business so that when they go somewhere, There's nothing left under a rock that they don't know. That's, I think, crucial. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations for how often do you meet with your staff? Like, I'm guessing you meet, you're at a seasonal club, so it's a little bit different. And it's hard, actually, to to have meetings when you're in the thick of it in the middle of the summer. But you've also worked at a year-round club, so... In just kind of in general, what do you think would be a recommendation for like how often to meet with your staff and, yeah. and just check in? Yeah. And, and and I think that if there was a time to meet with everybody, 
if there was something really to be addressed as unified once a week or so. But I don't, I don't think there really needs to be a prescribed day or time. But I think that everyone should be aware of things that are going well, complement them and celebrate them, but also be truthful in certain things that they can act on in a different way that make them look better, right? And that could be just passing them by at 12 o'clock and saying, John, you did an amazing job in that lesson. It would mean a lot to not only the member, but to you, if you move some tennis balls off the service area line, prevent anyone from falling and create a more of a safety approach to delivering a great lesson. Mm-hmm. Now, he would take that in a very punctual, polite manner. That helps him and that protects the member, right? So I, I think having a great dialogue that's all day long during moments that require it and feeling approachable is crucial. I think, yeah, like you said, just being open and and. I do like to to have meetings every now and then. I, th- I think they do come in handy just because sometimes you're rushing, you're you're doing a million things. So I do enjoy even as a pro to have those those moments to sit down and just kind of evaluate yes. how this went or what we're looking forward to doing. Um, I think that does come into play. But yeah, there's no specific recipe to it, I'm sure. No, correct. And and it is good to have structure and it's good to have set times for things. And there's a great ebb and flow that work uh, around all of that, which is really nice. Now, what do you think are some of the most common mistakes that teaching pros make when they first start teaching tennis? Maybe when they're in their early 20s and they're just in college or just came out of college and they're first starting to teach? Yes, yes. That's a great question. And I think that there's two parts to it. I think that they want to impress people mm-hmm. and they want to entertain people. Right. And that those are two, they go hand in hand because looking to stand out. Right. And so I see too often we lead with our ego, but we don't lead with thoughtfulness. And so my advice is to young pros is learn to educate yourself in terms of how to make the experience better for your member than yourself to look good, right? So hitting fancy shots and and really creating this this entertainment-driven hour should be more focused on creating value, reflection, thoughtfulness, and how to do that where... You have fun, but in the most productive manner. Yeah, I think if I had to look back on this and when I first started teaching, I think the main mistake that I made, just, you know, as I'm, we're talking about this, is yeah. I think I was trying to emulate the coaches that taught me. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. And, and I wasn't really being myself. I was just trying to be like they were. And let me tell you, that did not work out. I learned that I learned that pretty pretty early on. You know, when I first started coaching, it was in a college team environment, and I was like trying to be this like super tough, yeah, like just tough personality. And that's not how I am at all. 
Yeah. And um, it's just funny. Now looking back, it's like, yeah, I don't know what I was doing. But yeah. it's funny because, you know, for, for different people, it's different things. For some people, it's just, you know, finding a voice and 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 being outgoing. I think, yeah, there's just there's just different different challenges there. And I think, again, being in a good environment with good coaches that you can sort of emulate, but then at the same time, try to incorporate your own personality and your, and your own way of of thinking about the game and your own beliefs. I think it takes time. I think, I I mean, at least for me, it probably took me, not that I'm perfect now by any means, but to, to like really find my groove and like my way of teaching, I think at least six years. I don't know. What do, what do you think for yourself? Yeah, it takes time. It really does. Figure out what your style is. And I, but I also, I also think it's, it's really as you, as you do it more and more with time, you, you learn how to customize and be creative about what you're trying to solve for. Right. So that's, that's, that's really that's really where the the imagination and the creativity and the presentation and the customization come in. So once you start to do it a lot and there is that focus and concentration driven toward that outcome, then you find your your approach, right? Mm-hmm. And that approach could could come in one year for some. It could be five, it could be 15 or 20. And there's there's timelines everywhere in between. But it, it really comes down to what that coach really wants out of their time on the court and whether they're reflective enough to make the necessary changes and approaches to help themselves. Right. And to help and to help the the student, because and, and we've talked about this on the podcast many times, is that not everybody's looking for the same thing. Right. And every club is very different. You are at a seasonal club. So I'm guessing I don't I'm not familiar with your club, but I'm guessing it's somewhat similar to the clubs that I've been to in the summers, that they're very family oriented, more of like a resort style. What does that look like for you? So. So I have I've been very fortunate uh, to create a culture in which learning is appreciated, respected, and welcomed 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. So I have everything for everybody. And again, that's where I said, you know, skills unite and scores divide. So to make a long story short, you know, I've created this culture of learning, mm-hmm. of, of wanting to get better. Everybody, everybody. So that's what's really been joyful to me is the philosophy for patience, progress, educating the team. We're all in this to make everybody better. I say that because every club is different. And I think if anybody can make it the way they wish they could spend all day long enjoying that because it's something that's for them that's a beautiful thing. Like that's like a match made in heaven. And I think that's what we should all pursue, but every club is different and it really goes down to what you want to create. Right. I mean, I think as teachers, we always want to teach, right? I mean, that's, 
that is the main reason we're there for. That's what we're getting paid to do, right? Is to make people better and, and teach them, you know, how to get better. I think what I've noticed at least from my experience, is that I'm able, in that very short time, I can really make a difference tactically, especially when it comes to doubles, like really teaching the doubles game, where to stand, where to go to. But technical stuff is a little bit tougher because it's a very short period of time and you can help, but then they're gone after the summer and you don't see them again and they might go back to their old habits. So I don't know if you get to see your people year round or like, how does that work out for you? Uh, I, I don't. I mean, I, I kind of have my summer and then I take a little bit of time off fall, winter, uh, to kind of, you know, do a lot of the writing, pod, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I'm a firm believer that we should look for the largest challenges and solve with the smallest changes. Okay. Now, if, if we did that, right in the most thoughtful manner, we can look over 12 weeks and say, did that large challenge look slightly less of a challenge? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be huge, right? Yeah. Now, are they, are they moving a little better than they had started? Right. What is it about their movement that we solved for that looks better now, right? And then what, what you really want to do is, and what I said earlier is, is you want to protect and preserve so that they can stay in the game the longest possible time in their life, right? Because if they're out of the game, there, there's nothing helpful there. So teaching posture, teaching technical awareness, teaching mindfulness, teaching an understanding of thyself in terms of how to slow down because I believe speed is the enemy of progress and help them understand certain small changes within the landscape of a big jungle. And then you do it in the most kind, authentic, genuine, positive, unforceful manner. They will follow you and do exactly as you suggest. Mm-hmm. And they're going to instantly have a comparison. Wow, this feels a lot easier than it did earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's pursue that feeling. Now, in one hour, they've just had a comparison. Now you've pursued a new feeling. Now they can't wait to get back next week and make that feeling last a little longer. That is having a real approach to change. Yeah, I love what you said there. Speed is the enemy of progress. I'm going to have to steal that one from you. (laughs) Okay, you got it. That is so good. Speed is the enemy of progress. I really like that because it's so true, everybody. And sometimes even the coaches, like, you know, we want to go faster. And really it's just slowing down, breaking things down. It really makes a difference. I could not agree more with that. And I'm going to steal that saying. Just so you know, what do you think is the most common mistake that directors make or boards when they're hiring a tennis pro? Maybe some of the things that you've learned from hiring people. There are so many different clubs and structures and personalities on boards and directors. You know, so there's there's a lot going on there. 
Yeah. But I do think that what everyone should look for is someone who has a great hospitality approach, has a great service-driven approach, and someone who can deliver value consistently. That is really, really crucial. The, the opposite of that, right, is to hire for skill, playing ability, maybe, uh, a lot of, you know, great results or a name or whatever it is. Once you look for the wrong values, you have a bigger problem than looking for the right solutions first. So hospitality is taking care of others, creating an experience that's collaborative, that's meaningful, it's thoughtful. And can you deliver value on court, off court? Can you build a team of values? Can you create a court that's pristine and maintained and create value in, in that operation? And just an overall system that's built on those three pillars. And I think if more clubs did that, I think you get an overall better experience across the board. Yeah, I do think that a lot of times, especially boards, if they're not tennis people, they're not in the tennis industry, it's kind of difficult for them to to know who to hire. A lot of the times it's like you get blinded by their playing background and, and then you don't know, like, how are they going to be as a leader, right? Um, and that's a very, very different thing. Very and, different. <laughs> but how can you tell? I mean, are there any any specific things that you look for uh, when you're when you're hiring someone? If you're if you're asking me about my hiring process, so I, I look for values. Uh, mm -hmm. That's my number one thing. Is I look for values. Uh, I go through a very um, stringent uh, hiring process to go through patterns and responses that I have looked at uh, and I look at the person's values that align and how they genuinely be helpful to me and we can move forward in the process, right? And it has nothing to do with how good of a player you are, but it all has to do with how they communicate certain things to me that I ask them which raises my probability of getting the best possible candidate. Now, I go sometimes months and months looking for the diamond in the rough, and I'm very thorough as to what I'm looking for, but mm -hmm. I, I look for values. I look for good people who really want to make their own lives better, and the experience with me transfers into a better life for them but they have to be looking to also get better because I, I want to get better. Right. And so if we share the same values, then it's great. It's great. No, I think that's a great way to look at it. I think that's, that can be tough when you're interviewing someone, they're on their best behavior. Right. So it's really hard to, to really get a sense for what that person is like. It's hard also. And I also think, um, Clarifying misunderstandings uh, at the very beginning is very important, right? So, mm. so what is the goal? What is the objective? And I, I give people a very clear blueprint as to what we're all about. And they say to me, 
yes, amen, Rish. This is exactly what I want. And if it's not what they want, they they certainly can find something else that is more aligned to what they do want. That's, I think, very important is to be very clear to have no misunderstandings from the very beginning and set the vision and set the blueprint up that they say, yes, this is where I want to be. That's crucial. Because you can always have a meaningful conversation to them in a very kind way and say, if things are going a little off, well, you know, you read this back and we, before we started, these are the things that we wish to work together on to make this the most peaceful time together for four months. Situation going slightly, is it making it more difficult or is it making it easier? And through, through the art of conversation and having a real blueprint for the expectations to have with each other, it all gets resolved. There's no perfect match, but I think you can get as close to finding the right people as possible. I think having a very clear description, a vision, like you said, I think is, I think that's one of the things where maybe sometimes boards lack when they're hiring for a director or, or maybe even directors might lack when trying to hire a tennis pro is not having a clear vision of what you want that person to be like, what that person's going to be doing. If you don't have that, like, set and and really have a clear vision of what you want, I think it's really hard to find a good fit that's going to stay. So I think that that's, that's one of the things that stick out to me yeah. many, many times. Yeah. In your experience, you notice that to be a, a kind of like a recurring pattern? Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes for a board to have a clear vision because they don't necessarily understand the tennis business and the tennis industry. Or, or like what are really the responsibilities of a tennis director? Because I think a lot of the times, a lot of the times people just think you're just teaching tennis and having fun. And they don't realize like all the things that go into that job outside of the time that you're actually on court teaching. There's so many things that you have to coordinate, right? And and it takes a very organized person. It takes a really good communicator. It takes a person that is skilled with technology, with marketing, with, you know, there's a lot of other things. And and I think that a lot of times that's really misunderstood in our industry. Right. You, no, you're, you're, you're spot on. And it's amazing because they're, the same skills that a tennis director has are the same skills that a high-level executive has in their own business, right? It's all very similar in nature, right? But I think that recognizing the, the complexity and the scale and the volume and nature of and scope of work, which is hours on end providing services and structures, that that is a very, very difficult thing to do day in and day out, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, once boards can recognize that, and every club is different. I think that just makes it a much easier hiring process, but also they're also more likely to want to keep you happier, right? Because they realize the value in having somebody very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of these, are there any 
things that stick out to you or of things that you would like to see change in the industry? That's a hard question also. Yeah, that's a tough one. I would love to see more assistant pros, more head pros, and just overall tennis professionals see a better path for them in terms of their own growth, their own value, and realizing that you're an entrepreneur. And as a, you're not just a tennis coach, but if you can look at a 10-year plan and you say, wow, being a tennis pro could lead to being a tennis director, which means I'm now the CEO, I'm now the business owner, that is who I want to be. And if they can create a, a, a pathway for that, to do that, that would be huge. I would love to see every pro become more successful do what they love to do and, and reach the goals that they have in the most fundamental manner. It's really interesting now because I think our profession is not, not necessarily changing, but there are things that are very new. Like I was on Instagram yesterday and I saw these coaches who are just basically getting lessons through Instagram. I didn't know if you know about that. No, I do not. Please share. Well, I don't know how that business model works. I don't know. But there's a lot of different things yeah. coming out and, and different ways of, of providing tennis. Some pros like aren't even like at a club. They just, you send them a video and then they help you out and they look at your technique. It's just, there's, there's different like specializations that I'm seeing. And it's just really, really interesting. Seeing all of these different like ways to reach people are getting broader and broader, right? And, and you're, mm -hmm. you're about Instagram being one of them. Different platforms are creating different ways to, I almost feel like, again, like speed is the enemy of progress, but we live in a satisfaction-driven world that's instantaneous. So yeah. all these areas are coming in as a byproduct of the necessity and convenience to speed. That's yeah. what, right? Mm -hmm. So, but is there anything wrong with that? I don't know, but it really depends on whether that's being helpful on the receiving end of the other person. Right. Right. And, and if there, if there's value there and it's helpful, then great. But if it's creating more of a difficulty, then there may not be a place for it. Right. But only time will tell. Yeah. And are you teaching a pickleball and padel or any other racket sports at your club? No, no, no. So no, no pedal, no pickleball yet. And yet. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and, you know, pickleball is a big growing sport, right? And we'll see. I think, again, every club is different in terms of not just demographics, but location to homes, water, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And as you know, pickle has some challenges that still need to be addressed, right? Like noise and injuries and stuff like that. But certainly it is growing, but it all depends on where the club is and what the what things look like. How do you go about your pricing strategy with pickle and all the other sports? Do you, How does that work for you guys? Yeah, that's really interesting because I think every club does it a little bit different. It's the same price as tennis. Yeah. So the price of a private tennis lesson is the same price for a pickable private lesson and a group lesson for tennis is the same price as a pickleball 
group lesson. And I've talked about this before too, because a lot of clubs, I think, add pickable because it's an added value to the members, but not necessarily going to increase the revenue that you bring in as a director, especially if your club doesn't charge for court time, right? So if you're not, if you're not charging for court time, how are you really going to be monetized in pickable? Pickable has a very low learning curve, right? People learn and they want to play. So if you don't charge for events, then it's like, you, you know, how how are you as a director now going to bring in money from these added responsibilities for now you're adding a totally different sport, more programming, more things, you know? So yeah, it's, I think it's a little bit different for every club. Everybody's kind of figuring it out based on their needs and how they're set up. But yeah, because some places bring in a ton of money. I mean, if you're charging for court time, right? Yeah. Pickleball is going to bring in a lot of money because you can have, in a very small space, you're going to have a ton of people. So, Yeah, that's well said. That's a really good point. Yeah, and I think you're right about all these clubs are trying to figure out what is, where is, how much of revenue actually can come out of some of these new programs. Mm-hmm. And will they take away from existing revenue that comes from the biggest supplier, which is tennis, right? Right. And then how to ebb and flow between all that. Because now you've got far more responsibility if you're doing multiple racket sports. Mm-hmm. Again, it comes down to to having a clear vision, right, of what you want. Because if you're just like, oh, this is a trend, I'm going to add pickleball, and you don't really have a plan for how you're going to make it a successful program and, and bringing revenue, then it might not work out very well. <laughs> exactly. You're 100%. 100%. Yeah. So if you don't mind sharing with us, what has been the Grand Slam moment and the double bagel moment of your coaching career? Okay. Grand Slam. I'd say probably from, from a coaching point of view is when I took that ladies team you know, in 2010 to the national championship and we had that best record and we create a memory in this book and everyone's still great friends and we had some recognition for that. So that was definitely a grand slam moment as a coach, a double bagel moment. When I first started teaching, right, I, I fell down and I hurt my shoulder and I couldn't teach and oh. it was extremely painful. And that led to me contemplating whether I can even do this. So that initial disappointment, setback, frustration always kind of still remains because it it helped me move past that in a really positive way and then go back to teaching and still end up with with a decent summer. I think a lot of pros would agree that injuries are definitely the lowest points as a coach. It's just like you can't bring money, you can't work, you can't you know, help people. And it's just, it's just really, really frustrating, especially if it's your right arm and you're right-handed. You certainly don't want it to be your dominant hand, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the worst. Well, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for spending time with us today. Best of luck. How can people reach you? They, if they want to reach out to you. Yeah, they can certainly check out my website. It's www.rashankuruku.com. They can find me on Spotify and Zen Tennis. Um, And those two are probably the two best ways right now. I just want to thank you, Jennifer, for the opportunity, the time, and this amazing conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks, you too.
Thank you so much for listening to Vida Tennis. I really hope that you are enjoying these episodes. And if you are, please let me know by leaving a review on the platform you are tuning in from. You can always reach out to me at vidatennispodcast at gmail.com if you have any specific questions, comments, or if you just want to say hi. I wish you all the best, and I will see you next time for another episode of Vida Tennis.